and lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Welcome to Lit with Lloyd. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, and our guest author today, courtesy of KCAT Radio, is Meredith Yeager. Meredith is the author of three books, including The Pilot's Daughter, which just came out last month. Welcome, Meredith. Uh, It's great to have you here, and it's nice to see you again. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're going to start by talking about your first two books. Tell us about your first two books, what they're about, and then we'll, we'll talk about the latest one. Okay, sure. So my first two books are both dual narrative, dual timeline historical fiction, where there's a story, a mystery set in the past, and then a story in the present where both storylines come together. The The first one, my debut, The Dressmaker's Dowry, is set in San Francisco, both in present day and in 1876. An immigrant seamstress goes missing in the 1870s storyline. Her friend goes searching for her, and then it brings up themes of, of you know, class disparity and income inequality, which are still very prevalent in San Francisco today. I was working for a tech company at the time, and I just wanted to draw attention to the history of San Francisco. All I ever heard at lunch was people talking about angel funding and their startups. I thought, you know, there are ships buried underneath the streets. There used to be saloons and opium dens. So I wanted to throw it way back. Wow. <laughs> so there's a journalist in the present day who uncovers this storyline. And then it all ties together with some dark secrets in her own, the family she married into. (laughs) Wow. How did you come up with this storyline? You know, I had tried unsuccessfully to get an agent when I was younger for two contemporary novels, just straight women's fiction in the same vein of Emily Giffen or Jennifer Weiner. And that just wasn't what was selling at the time. It was 2009. That was the vampire craze. (laughs) So I was writing in the wrong genre, but I didn't know it. And so then I read a dual narrative novel and I thought, hey, you know, maybe I should be brave enough to try my hand at historical, even though I'm not a historian. I I was in Greece on my honeymoon, so it wasn't like the surroundings inspired it. I just had been working so hard that whole year. I finally had the time and the space to think. So, And the jet lag was working in my favor. I was up really early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's really great. Tell us about the second book. Yeah, so the second book is Boardwalk Summer. This one is set in Santa Cruz, which is very nearby and also where I got my diploma. I have a bachelor's in uh, modern literature from UC Santa Cruz. And so, yeah, I think it's a wonderful town. And I'd read an article in the SF Gate about an archivist at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk who was just talking about the hundreds of years of, I guess, a hundred years of historical artifacts that are there. And it really inspired me. And as I was reading this article, I just had this vision of a girl coming into contact with an artifact and then it tying into um, a story, a sad story from the past. So um, they used to hold the, the pageants there, beauty pageants, like before it went to Atlantic City. And so I have a, a beauty queen, an aspiring beauty queen, Violet, in the 1940s who everything looks great on the outside, but she's actually in a very unhappy marriage. And so I don't want to give anything away about that plot. Correct. But, um, yeah, in, in the modern day, it's set actually in 2007 because that was the actual centennial celebration of the boardwalk. So she's an aspiring historian. She is working there and she reads a newspaper article 
about Violet saying that she died by suicide and she thinks that's so sad. But then the more she digs, she starts to doubt if it's true. And so um, you read that one. So then, yes, yeah, I both, did. Both stories come together in the end. Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed to say I have not read The Dressmaker's Dowry. <laughs> and your third one, which you're going to talk about, yes. is, is has just come out. So I have I have a little leeway there, but I have no excuse for number one. I will get to it. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, get to this one. This is the, the new one. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's talk about this one. It's been out since November... 2nd. November 2nd. And tell us about the storyline and how you came to write it. Absolutely. So this is the first book I've set in New York. I'm a California native, Bay Area native, born and raised in Berkeley, California. <laughs> so this was a stretch for me, and it was really important to get the historic details right. But I've heard from my agent, from my editor, native New Yorkers, that they felt it was very authentic. So that was, you know, <laughs> reassuring. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, um, I love The Great Gatsby. That was one of my favorite books when I was younger, and then I read it again as an adult had a totally different take <laughs> than when I was, you know, 15, 16, but still love it. Um, and so this one, a woman during World War II, her pilot father goes missing. He's missing in action. She desperately wants closure, wants to believe that he's still alive, finds letters in his jacket pocket when the army ships his belongings six weeks later. And they're not from her mother. They're love letters from a mysterious woman in New York. So she suspects he might have a second family, he might still be alive, decides to enlist the help of her aunt, who she's much closer to than her mother, and then in the process finds out that her aunt had this whole secret life in the 20s as a Ziegfeld Follies showgirl, and she has kept her past hidden from her family because she is concerned. She thinks it was her actions in those days. She believes they might have inadvertently led to murder. And the murder is based on a true unsolved cold case, murder cold case of 1923 of the Broadway butterfly. So um, I just went deep, deep into historical research on this one and was also fascinating because we were in the pandemic as I wrote this. So I think I really bonded with the 40s character Ellie and everyone who was left behind during World War II, where you have all these loved ones fighting on the front lines. You know, there's death all around, but you're not, you know, in America up close and personal with that. And I just thought about the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, everyone who was really there. And then all we were told to do is just stay home, isolate. It was such a stressful time, you know, but I, it helped me relate with, yeah, I think those World War II restrictions and wow. some of what that fear must have felt like. Yeah. And this is your first one that actually centers on on, a, on one of the wars. Yeah, I mean, there was, I think, a, a touch of World War II in uh, Boardwalk Summer because it is 1940, but it doesn't go into it too much. And same here. So the, the books that I have that focus on the war, it's here on the home front, not like one of the spy novels yeah, set yeah. in Europe. So that's what yeah, 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 yeah. makes it pretty different. Yeah. So just talking about that element for, for a moment. We, we all have access to tons of World War II-related historical fiction. Two authors that I read that just focus on other elements of history are Rene Rosen and Marie Benedict. I don't know if you've read either one of them. I've heard both. I think I've read Marie Benedict, yeah. Okay. They write historical fiction about things that are not war-related. It's kind of a nice departure from the typical historical fiction novel. I remember enjoying Boardwalk Summer so much 
because of that in, in part, but also because it was such an interesting storyline. There's a lot of historical fiction that has nothing to do with wars. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's great that you've tapped into that. Okay, so you wrote two contemporary novels. We can call them women's fiction or we can call them contemporary novels, which I prefer. What made you depart from those to go into historical fiction and... Is it possible to resurrect the first two novels? <laughs> I get asked that a lot. <laughs> and the thing is, um, imagine that you are playing an instrument, you're learning to play piano, <laughs> and suddenly you're so much better than you were. You wouldn't want someone to hear your terrible old <laughs> recordings. So at the time, like, of course, I was devastated that I'd accumulated all these agent rejections. But now every time I get asked that, I'm like, thank goodness they never saw the light of day. They're so weird. <laughs> yeah. Aside from, you know, a trusted critique partner who's read them, maybe some family members, no, I don't want to <laughs> share them. And then, um, I'm sorry, what was the second question? <laughs> I've already forgotten. Uh, I think that was it. I mean, what? I guess what led you into historical Oh, fiction? into historical. My, my reading tastes changed. So uh, I think that's natural, you know, as you read, like I like to read widely and you should read within genre, but also outside of it. So I think when I was studying like some of my literature courses, they were, you know, focused on the literary canon. And I felt like I was cheating on my syllabus with Bridget Jones's diary and all these very light <laughs> books that I loved. Um, but no, as I got older, like I uh, discovered more authors, started reading more psychological thriller and historical. I, I think, you know, I had read Orphan Train by Christina mm. Baker Klein, and it was phenomenal. It was I mean, so good. she's still one of my favorite authors, just incredible. And I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, I aspire to do that level of research. I, I think I'd also read a novel at the time by Sarah Geo, and that was that was dual narrative. It was called Blackberry Winter. Yep, and I it read was, that. Yeah, it was set modern day journalist and then a story in the 30s. And that, that really was the one where I felt like, if she can do this, I can do this. I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Sarah Geo, did you ever read Goodnight June? No, I haven't read that one. That is one. so good. Okay. Really good. <laughs> so you've got the three historical fiction novels. Have you been with the same agent, editor, publisher for those three? And how did you get published uh, in, with the first one? That is such a good question. So I have been fortunate enough to be with my same agent. Some people write a brilliant first book and they sign on right away with an agent. That was not my case, as you know. <laughs> I spent um, several years, you know, six years querying first those two books that I had to shelve. Then I took a year off writing because I was just so disappointed in myself. I had this hope to be on a 30 under 30 list, which is so silly, but it really mattered to me. Yes. And so when I realized I was not only going to be unpublished by 30, but also unagented, I just thought this is the worst birthday ever. <laughs> and I uh, went to go see Magic Mike with friends, which is very good for cheering up. <laughs> and um, and so then, then I got the idea for, you know, then I got married, had the idea for the Dressmaker's Dowry and thought I'm really going to take my time with this one. I think I I'd queried too quickly with the others like you're just so eager to put it out there so yeah and I got from my agent Jenny Bent what's known as a revise and resubmit request this means the agent wants you to make some changes uh -huh. if you make the changes it's not guaranteed right. that they'll sign you I just wanted someone to partner with me to make the best possible book. She loved the story said in the past. She thought the modern story could use some more oomph. And she said, make it darker, introduce blackmail. <laughs> so it's like these guidelines that you don't really know how to fulfill. Um, so I worked hard on her changes with my critique partner, 
And I was working full time for a different San Francisco tech company. And I remember I was in line at Pete's before work when I got the email that said, I want to offer representation. And I just about, you know, screamed and met Pete's and I was so excited. So it took me six years to get the agent. Once I signed with Jenny, then it actually moved quickly. We did some revisions and I think just a month later we sold it to HarperCollins. So that was really fortunate. So the first two are with um, William Morrow, which uh-huh. is an imprint of HarperCollins. And then for this new one, I switched over to Penguin Random House to Dutton. So new editor, but same agent. Wow. Are you comfortable telling us why you decided to change for book three? Oh my gosh. Well, it was actually when I had this idea, uh, my current editor, I mean, sorry, my former editor, I couldn't sell her on it. I really believed in it. My agent Jenny believed in it. and, And as it was, she... She felt it wasn't the best fit. I think she wanted me to go in a slightly lighter direction. And she, you know, was great. And that was a really hard decision to make because I thought, am I ending my whole career over believing in this one weird book idea? But um, Jenny and I both both liked the idea. And so, yeah, it was a it was a tough decision at the time, you know, but we yeah, she, she didn't want this book. And I thought wow. maybe someone else does. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, you certainly <laughs> did not go down a step by getting over to Penguin. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's always very nerve wracking. There are no guarantees in this business. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of the next book. Yes. Do you have any kind of deal with Penguin Random House or will you have to shop it out again? They have an option. So they will take first look. Okay. I've had a great Zoom meeting with my editor who's excited about the idea. But then from a, a business point of view, you know, it always depends on your sales. And I'm glad I'm on radio. That's why we do. <laughs> that's why we do public outreach. <laughs> yes, saying, indeed. Please, it's the holidays. Or I guess if this airs in January, it'll be passed. But books are always a great gift. <laughs> so, um, so yes, I mean, I very much hope that Dutton will buy it. I know that my editor is excited about it. But there are more factors that go into play than just uh, it being an idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How far along are you with the next one? And can you tell us the, I know you can. Do you want to tell us what it's going to be about? Um, I will say <laughs> um, I finished the research writing. Um, yeah, I need to dive into that. Yeah, this one will be set in California again. It's going to focus on urban renewal in the 70s, issues of uh, racism and redlining, and then also on the female inmates of San Quentin in the early 1900s. Oh, wow. Because there used to be women in the prison until the 30s. So that's all I'm going to say, but it'll yes. be yeah, another California original. <laughs> wow. And another dual... Uh, <laughs> yeah, another dual yeah. perspective. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. How long do you typically take to write a book? You know... They're so as a as a working mom, like it's so hard. And when I worked full time, I could only write on weekends, but I didn't have a kid. So at <laughs> least I knew I had every weekend free to do what I wanted. And my husband was fine with it. He, you know, does his own thing. And so I could usually do a draft in about four to six months. Then once my daughter was born mm-hmm. and I was under contract for 
for Boardwalk Summer, that was incredibly stressful. And I remember she was a little baby and I would wear her in the ergo and type and it was so bad for my back. But it was like I had to take any snippet of time that I got whenever she fell asleep. I've never had a nanny. I wish the Bay Area is an expensive place. <laughs> so, you know, and, and same now, like I don't pay for a nanny. I don't pay for after school care. So now I pretty much get until um, 140 when it's time to pick her up from school. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, just carving out time, begging my mom who's still in Berkeley to do some <laughs> some grandma camp. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope I mean, I'm hoping again to focus and get a clean draft finished in four to six months but we'll see yeah yeah the whole thing i mean you work on it then with more people you know with your agent with your editor go through revision so it takes at least a year to have something decent that's you know printable yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but i imagine it takes a long time to do the research and you yeah. and you have finished that yes that i was doing over the summer and that was a lot of fun i was really yeah doing a lot of reading at the time so the research can take a while but it's so much fun. I mean, you have to love it. Otherwise, you shouldn't be writing historical. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a great genre. Yeah. Have you had any interest from movie or TV studios for any of the books? Oh, gosh, not that I know of. They are, <laughs> they are welcome to get in contact with my publicist. Um, sometimes you'll get, you know, weird things on Twitter where someone's claiming to be a producer and you're like, no, I don't see the blue check next to your name. So I've definitely gotten some what I would qualify as weirdos saying they work in Hollywood, but <laughs> I don't think they actually do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, guess, I guess everything is automatically a scam until proven otherwise. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, so besides your agent and editor, do you have others that, that are early readers for you? Yes, I um in the past I worked closely with an author friend of mine who's an Australian author, Sally Hepworth. Oh, I've, she's a I've huge read her. Yeah, New York Times bestseller now. Yeah, so yeah. Big congrats to Sally. So she's gotten really busy, but we um used to always always swap books. She has actually read those two horrible unpublished books, both of them <laughs> that will remain forever on the on the laptop. <laughs> but no, I don't share with family because they are not professionals and they are not objective. So I know some people say, oh, you know, my spouse reads everything. My husband doesn't get to read my books until they're published. And then uh, <laughs> he's like, I hope I'm in the acknowledgments. <laughs> this time he is. And I thanked him for paying taxes and doing the boring things so that I can focus on my art. But uh, no, I prefer I prefer author friends who I've met online to read my books. So I have like, uh, you know, a great group of, of female authors who... Um, you know, write historical or write in various genres and who've offered to read and we email. But I've never met any of them aside from Sally, yeah. who I met once in 2014 when she visited L.A. Wow. <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned earlier about how upsetting, a little bit depressing it is that you can't get an agent yes. and you get those rejection letters. You know that Gene Owl clan of the cave bear had 64 rejections oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> that, and that book my goodness i think my friends and i discovered that book when we were 12 and it blew our minds <laughs> wide open <laughs> uh, we we have talked to so many authors who have had a lot of success that that have had a lot of rejections i mean when we hear about somebody that got picked up like first shot it, it, that's the exception right so you're in good company, yes. is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Do your publishers, have they put out 
uh, all your books in ebook and audiobook? Oh, yes, definitely. And I actually got a really sweet message today from um, <laughs> one of my friends who was a fellow mom in Alameda when I lived there. And she says, I listen to it when I'm doing all my chores, these things that I hate, like laundry and dishes, I'm now looking forward to because I'm listening to uh, The Pilot's Daughter. And a lot of uh, my mom friends are so busy, they only do audio. But yeah, whatever you prefer. I like reading on Kindle, ebook, audiobook, paperback. You do you. <laughs> yeah. You know, the audiobook, I, I don't know if I've ever seen any stats, but I'll bet you that it has been the most dramatic reason for increase in readers. Yeah. I mean, you think of all the people that, that don't ever read, don't take the time or yeah. don't read, but they've got all this time driving or oh, yeah. doing something at home that where they're not using the brain. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. They are fantastic. Absolutely. And it's like some people just process information that way. My husband prefers audio. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so he's, um, you know, always listening to podcasts and things. And so, um, yeah, I think some of us who can just sit still and enjoy the act of reading, but when the world is <laughs> so busy, you know, and you're competing, your book is competing for attention among Netflix, among like Instagram reels or TikTok, all these things that provide like instant gratification. So it is is harder to convince people to sit down and focus yeah read. yeah <laughs> i mean even in the the movie theaters the first run movies are only in for a week or two before they start streaming yeah so you know that's of course greatly affected the the movie industry in a negative way whereas i think audiobooks yeah has impacted in a very positive way definitely and it's so cool the craft of voice actors like with each audiobook I get um, some different samples from various voice actors and I can choose among usually five people who I think sounds the most like the character to me. And so then there's that person putting their spin on it and interpreting your story. And especially when you have accents, like I chose a narrator when I had the German narrator in Dressmaker's Dowry. And I had a woman named uh, Barry Kreinick who's just incredible with accents. And uh -huh. She did the German accent. She did some of Sally's novels, does a fantastic Australian accent. So yeah, pretty cool. When we've talked to authors that have big, 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 big name publishers like you do, they normally don't get a say on their narrators, but it sounds like you actually get to pick. I don't source them. So they come to you with who they've already picked and say, and you pick, we would one. be fine if you chose among okay. you know this group of people we've already vetted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, yeah. and what about book covers? How, how, oh, how are yeah. those handled? Book covers are fascinating. So book covers, the design team usually presents something. And in my case, I've never liked the original and neither has my agent. So there's been a lot of back and forth and it stresses me out because I never <laughs> want to be the difficult client. But also a, a cover matters. You know, Absolutely. People choose a book by its cover. So my sister who has worked in, in graphic design for a really long time, she taught me a trick a while ago and said, go on stock images, even these big companies, you know, she's worked for several tech companies, they source from, from iStock photo, like go on there, find something that you want, and that'll get them set in the right direction. So I've done that every time, searched iStock photo, sent some images to the design team and said, this is what I'm looking for. Like, please, <laughs> I know it exists. Don't say it doesn't exist because I just found, you know, this image of a city or this image of a woman. And then every time that's helped get it together really quickly. So yeah, each one I had a pretty big hand. In, wow. Um, yeah, sort of setting the tone and getting it 
the way that I was happy with. That's fantastic because, I mean, we really have had authors that have said they have no input at all. Yeah. So oh. that's great. Did you negotiate or did your agent negotiate so that much, in? So much negotiating. Like my agent would say just the most harsh things off the record. So she'd call me and say, this is hideous. It looks like an Amish romance. And then, of course, we can't say that because it would hurt everyone's feelings on the team. And so then it's like, how do you reinterpret that in a way that sounds better? You're like, oh, this is not a little old-fashioned, not quite, you know, yeah. <laughs> what we're going for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because we actually have an author who writes Amish romance. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, every book cover has that right. particular hat. And if that's your and genre, yeah. then that's great because it's showing someone it's your genre. But if you're trying to appeal to, like, upmarket book club, you don't want it to look like Amish romance. You want it to look like, you know, what's what's going to pick someone's eye at yeah. the airport and yeah. think, okay, this looks... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, we grew up in the same area. Oh. I grew up in Albany. Oh, awesome. <laughs> uh, and then moved to Oakland. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. So, so I know the area you're talking yes. about. Yes. I'm very close to Albany now because we were fortunate enough to um, buy a house in Richmond. Uh -huh. So we're in the Richmond Annex. And yeah, I know. Al Albany, El Cerrito, Berkeley, Oakland. Yep. It's, yep. All, it's all home. Yeah, it <laughs> yep. really is. That's great. <laughs> Do you have authors that were big influences on you and your writing? Yes. I mean, I think my favorite author still is Leanne Moriarty. Mm. Not so much on my own writing. I just think she's phenomenal. You know, she has you laughing on one page and then crying in the next. Like her ability to write characters with such emotional depth and to write these amazing domestic thrillers or, you know, mysteries. But then with such heart so she is still one of my favorites big little lies was a favorite book long before it was made into the <laughs> yeah. hbo series yes and then um in terms of historical i yeah i love christina baker klein just finished the four winds by Kristen yep. hannah excellent that was book. phenomenal and i think her ability to show you know events that happened in the past the great depression and it correlates so closely with what's going on today. I think that is the most important thing where, you know, all of these migrants from Oklahoma, they're living in a homeless encampment and facing so much prejudice and the migrant workers are trying to unionize, you know, and, and, and putting their lives at risk. And it's like these things still matter. These are issues that are still happening. You know, a homeless encampment in Santa Cruz just got flooded out recently because of the rains. Uh -huh. The first thing I thought about was that is what happened in the four winds to this character who you just feel for her. She's a mother. And so I love that, that she can spread um, social awareness to people who might not otherwise be thinking about these issues in a contemporary sense. Yeah. And that's why historical fiction is important to me, because you can look at all the atrocities of the past and, and show them hopefully in a way where people are thinking, let's not repeat this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what can we learn so that we don't repeat yeah. this? Yeah. You know, I've, uh, I've talked to a lot of historical fiction authors. Uh, we've had many to our book club. But what you just said is probably the first thing that I've heard that really resonates with me and that I will keep in mind. Looking at the past to make sure not to repeat the, the mistake, you know, in the present. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And it's like, I think the authors who do it really well, it's not heavy handed. Yeah, you're still yeah, having yeah, a great yeah. time. You're yeah. still reading a book for entertainment, yep. but you're yep. learning along the way. Right. So I think that number one skill is what inspires me, yeah. you know, show someone something, make them feel something, but also keep it, keep it entertaining. Keep yeah. it a page turner. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that. And that's certainly true of <laughs> Boardwalk Summer, and I'm yeah. sure of the other two as well, <laughs> which I will find out soon enough. Uh, okay, so 
We, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, we usually end each show with a little bit of trivia, literary trivia. Okay. So I've got some for today. The Oxford English Dictionary credits Charles Dickens with the following words. Butterfingers, Crossfire, Dustbin, Fairy Story, Slow Coach, and Whoosh. He was also credited with boredom, but then it was taken away when it was discovered that that was from somebody else a couple of years earlier. <laughs> Alexander Dumas, for those that don't know, he wrote The Three Musketeers. He actually fought duels, and he fought his first duel at 23, and during the duel, his pants fell down, <laughs> but he still prevailed. And the last one for today is that the very first novel written on a typewriter was Tom Sawyer. I'll do one more. Frank Baum came up with the name Oz because he looked at his filing cabinet and saw A through N and O through Z. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was delightful to have you here. I loved all the things that you had to say, and I really can't wait to read the two that I haven't read yet. Thank you so much, Lloyd. It was great to be here, and I am excited to uh, spread the word about the, the pilot's daughter, and I hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. So a big thank you to Meredith Yeager and KCAT Radio. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org slash radio.